Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Sunday the 29th of the 8th. Michael, how have you been since Friday? I've been very well, Gary, thank you. How have you? I've been absolutely perfect. So, to start off with... A little story on economics, Michael. That sounds like a fun place to start, yeah? Oh, it's what everyone wants to hear. Well, actually, it's about truck drivers. Because we've been hearing a lot of people say things like, Michael, uh, the supply of good has no impact on the price of that good. This is true. Particularly in relation to houses recently. Yes. Never really a good explanation of how such a thing would happen. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, what other things would have to happen in order to create that scenario. But I saw the story and I thought it was a nice example of... How supply does affect prices. So this is in the uh, the Times today, the uh, British Times, and the headline is uh, "Soaring Pay Puts Waitress Lorry Drivers on Par with Lawyers." Ah, and this is this, Waitress is a supermarket chain. Very nice, very nice one too. Very good food. Painfully middle class. Well, I'm I aspire one day to be painfully middle class myself. So Waitrose has been having a massive problem getting truck drivers. And because they've been having massive trouble getting truck drivers and their business relies on the transport of goods, the wages offered to lorry drivers are now higher than some of the executives in their head office. Oh, that's a surprise. I would imagine it's particularly a surprise for those executives. (laughs) We're now reconsidering the choices they made. You're now making less than a truck driver. So what kind of money are we talking about here? Well, it's about uh, 53000 And this is why, Gary? This is because people are not wanting to be truck drivers? Well, they they say there's a shortage of about 90,000 truck drivers. Uh, the British government is basically saying that companies should hire more British truck drivers because with Brexit, it's now suddenly much more difficult to hire foreign truck drivers to do it, which has cut down massively on the supply of truck drivers. Has Brexit created... A requirement for more truck drivers, I wonder. I can't off the head think why it would have done, but... I mean, you could have seen if it involved um, companies moving some of their supply chains or things like that, or finding alternative suppliers, but not intrinsically, no. But, I mean, 90,000 shortfall, that's a lot of people. I mean, that's, that's serious pressure on a job market, and as we've seen, it consequently increases the value of people doing that job. Almost like, Michael, there's some sort of relationship between the supply of something and the price you must pay for it. It's funny. I I intuit, Gary. I have a sense of the point that you may be making, but the funny thing is, coincidentally, and this is quite, I can only assure the list, quite a coincidence, there is actually an article in The Currency by Ronan Lyons, the popular uh, property economist who actually is writing it it's a headline of his article is anti-science and the property market you know the way anti-science has become such a popular meme theme uh, in the last few years because oh, Trump and Trumpism and populism and anti-science and anti-vaxxers or anti-science and everybody is anti-science depends where you are I mean the United States Republicans and Christians and people on the right are anti-science. Um, although, curiously, when you apply the same questions on, uh, in, say, Europe and in Japan, it turns out that in Europe and Japan, to the extent that people are, shall we say, hostile to uh, the set, certain scientific propositions, it's the left that are more anti-science in Europe and in 
Japan. He's obviously using anti-science in that sense that uh, people are just making shit up anyway. It's, he curiously said, he, he, he says, there are plenty of reasons to be cheerful about the housing market, particularly progress on mortgages, social housing and land use. But the rise of anti-science, particularly the idea that extra supply does not improve housing affordability, is a definite reason to be fearful. And we have talked about this before, Gary, but this is not this is no longer the eccentric opinion of one or two people. It seems to be genuinely gaining traction amongst certain elements of the media and certainly widespread elements of, of left wing politicians that increasing supply does not does not improve affordability. And it's a bizarre notion. But it's a kind of a parable or a lesson in that it doesn't matter on the face of it how apparently unfounded empirically or irrationally uh, irrational on the face of it something has to be to be able to get traction and gain popularity hmm almost like people have an interest in certain things god <laughs> oh, you're irrevocably cynical about this i don't think it is necessarily an instrumentalization politically although i think there is an element of that i think these people genuinely believe that you can make the mathematics work in such a way and create your algorithms to come out so the results come out in such a fashion that you can pretend that actually increasing supply doesn't affect the price but i think you have to really make the kaleidoscope work and hold it only for a very very small fraction before the whole thing falls apart yes you can believe those things but you have to work to believe those things. You have to go out of your way not to find other information. As we were talking about with the with the um, amnesty for illegal immigrants, sometimes you just don't want to know what the actual number is. No, that is absolutely correct. And it is not in your interest to know the number. And I suspect that there are politicians on the left for whom we could say it is not really in their political interests for the housing crisis in Ireland to be resolved. Let's be fair, Gary, because you know, we're big into being fair. This, the instrumentalization of the housing market doesn't work simply in one political direction. It was a common, and conversations, be, be, even before we were doing this bizarre thing that we're doing now, a conversation that we had, and I had others, was the fact that the inexorable rise in house prices that began after the crash had started to resolve itself and we were recovering from the financial crash of 2008 and the collapse of the housing market here was based even then i mean lyons talks about the fact that we have effectively had for the majority of the last 15 years a housing shortage and the fact is that that was recognized quite a long time ago because in the direct aftermath of the crash we had almost no house building at all. The number of completions were down a thousand in even one year, I think maybe less than a thousand. And that was, that was recognized. That was obvious that that was happening. There, and there was no attempt by the then conservative, shall we say, in small C conservative Fine Gael government to do anything about it because some people, some cynical people said, do you know what? For the classic Fine Gael voter in Dublin and in suburbia, it really it made sense for for to keep them happy by seeing what 
by keeping the market tight to accelerate the process by which their houses, if they had mortgages on them, came out from underneath water so they were no longer in negative equity. And also the fact, and we have talked about this before, we, you know, you, you, you've talked about the fact, Gary, that it isn't always the case that everybody has the same interests. We, we talked an awful lot about people who had mortgages and who had debt, but it kind of ignored the fact that most people, two-thirds of the people who had houses in Ireland, had no debt at all on those houses, or at least very, very little debt. Now, for them, again, you might say, a lot of them classical Fine Gael or potential Fine Gael voters, now saw their house prices rise. And for some reason, we have this thing in the Western world where we don't like inflation happening, in anything except for our house prices we seem to think this is a good thing if you own a house my god i bought this house for one hundred and fifty thousand. now it's worth eight hundred thousand. that's fantastic so for far finnegale it 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 didn't it it didn't it wasn't a bad thing shall we say to see a constricted house market leading to the accelerated return of house prices taking people from underwater and people who had no debt to see the price the value of their properties going up so i think it happens on both sides it's not just only the bad people on the left do this i think that there have people the 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 political malfeasance in the area of the housing the irish housing market has occurred both on left and right i'm not even sure how much stock i put into that argument because yes people may like to see the value of their house going up but any rise in the value of your house is going to be counterbalanced by a rise in the price your children will pay for a house. And most people don't leverage their house at all. So the only point at which its price is actually going to impact upon you is either when you're paying property tax, if we ever get around to reevaluating those, or when you die and it's past your children. Or when you retire, sell your house in Dublin and buy a much nicer house in Wexford or in West Cork and have 200 and 300,000 left over. And then you maybe buy a small place in Normandy or the south of France. And anyway, Gary, I understand the point that you're making rationally, but rationally it has historically been the case that you're better off to rent, rent a property rather than buy a property and invest the differential that you in rent rather than mortgage in, uh, in a, a, a basket of of equities at the end of the day you'll actually end up with a better pot when you retire than you would have from the increase in the price of your your house that might be rational but that's not how people are most people like to see well i paid this for this look at what it's worth now and i see it it's it, it is it also people take it as a a general indicator of the health of the robustness of the economy i have i am wealthier i am better off and they don't necessarily think, oh, well, the kids are going to have to pay the same thing. No, they may do, but they may they may just think, well, the kids should have bought when we did. Uh-huh. In 1972, eight years before they were born. Exactly. People act in their own interests, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're always rational. They act in their interests as they see them, not as they necessarily are. The Waitrose thing is actually a good example of that as well. The Waitrose thing is, and well, the, the price increases we're seeing for uh, large goods vehicle drivers are great for those people. Yes. Fantastic. They're, they're seeing their, their, their wages go up astronomically. The problem there is that um, transport 
is one of those things where if that goes up, everything else tends to go up as well. And supermarkets in general have razor thin margins. These are entities which survive by selling massive quantities. Yes. So if the margins are razor thin, they don't really have a lot of space to absorb increased costs without pushing up the price. Yeah. And if it's a generalized transport shortage, it's going to hit everyone. And the only people who won't hit, actually, are those who can't get enough flurry drivers, in which case they have nothing to sell anyway. So they're not a competitor, effectively. And in fact, I take your point to be that ultimately... If Waitrose is experiencing this shortage, Waitrose are not unique. This must be a manifestation of a of a, of an, an economic shortage that is occurring throughout the whole of the British economy, and therefore is going to have an impact on price inflation across the the whole of the economy. There's the old saying that um, you're necessary, but you're not important. Yes, and things like truck drivers, floor staff, all of these people have kind of fallen into that, at least from a wage perspective, mm-hmm. because there are so many people who would do the job. Yes. But if suddenly there aren't that many people who do the job, then you're both necessary and important. And that's when the money comes. That's when the money comes in any place. So if you're a younger person looking to get into a uh, career, find somewhere that has uh, constraints on staffing numbers. Of course, that isn't necessarily a piece of advice directed towards putting somebody going into the, the, the long haul learning industry because, well, we have been, not we have been predicting, but one of the futurology predictions that's been going around for the last couple of years is that we're going to see huge losses in employment, specifically in the driving vehicles industry as self-driving vehicles, self-driving cars and trucks become the norm in the future. But no jetpacks, Gary. Still no jetpacks. Yeah, we've um, we have been saying that for years upon years upon years at this point, and the self-driving car thing just isn't going quite as well as people had forecast it would. Well, they are now to the point where there are actually practical, how would I say, real life experiments. Going forward, there are stretches of autobahn in Germany, there are bits of roads in the United States where they are trialing these vehicles. It it does look closer than it did. Now, the problem with, as we know, with technologies and science generally, very often these things suddenly look like they're closer and closer and closer, but never quite get there. And the classic we talked about before is the gen- generating electricity from fusion. Every year, there's somebody will write an article in the Sunday paper. We're only five years away from fusion. And we've been five years away from fusion from an awfully long time now. On the, the truck drivers thing, particularly, some of the plans I've seen where the, the long form trucking will be replaced by automation. And then when it gets into cities, they'll switch over yeah. to uh, truck drivers. The companies are saying that this means that, you know, there will be no job losses. But uh, there may be no job losses, but you would definitely assume there will be pay cuts in that situation. There's a lot of stuff truck drivers do that is very difficult to automate that is not driving. Driving is, is a relatively simple proposition. Yes. Robots don't deal well with movement, physical movement. There's an incredible amount that goes into it that people do innately that it turns out it's just very difficult to program for. Mm-hmm. So like unloading and loading the trucks. That would have to be automated as well. You'd have to 
do something about the, you know, the kind of the customer service, the on-ground knowledge the truck drivers have when they're dealing with the people that they're giving your goods to that comes back to you. That's important. You're not going to want to lose that either. Yes. But then, like, let's say that you can automate a truck so it could do everything. It could tell you, you know, how the truck is doing, the pressure in the tires. What happens if a tire goes? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. truck can tell you it's gone. But how are you going to automate repairing it, at least in the short term? Yeah. That could be harder. Yeah. So I, I, I can see a situation in which there's far more automation involved, but where you need a human there at all stages of it. As I said, I've just been hearing about it for rather a long time now. And then there's the question of, is it even economically viable? I mean, one of the things that will stop automation in a lot of places is not the fact it can't be automated or there's practical problems. It's just it doesn't make financial sense to automate it. Yes, that's true. I mean, for example, there have there has been a, there has been technology available for quite some time to automate large elements involved in fast food, for example. Uh, but it was never worthwhile as as long as the human costs involved remained below a certain point. the The automation was just too expensive. Now. Certain, I remember there was some stories coming out of Seattle. I remember when Seattle introduced, was it a $15 an hour minimum wage? Mm-hmm. That some of the fast food people there are saying, well, we're now, we have now reached the point. Yeah, some of the fast food, some of the large fast food places absolutely have automation systems ready to go for a lot of their things. And it's a question of the viability point of that technology. Which is one of those great times when raising the minimum wage will cause massive levels of unemployment in a sector. But don't worry, Michael, I'm assured those people will find other jobs. Yes, all those other low-paying, low-skilled jobs that are out there in our high-tech economies. And we will hear the the great oops. We didn't think that would happen. I do quite like this when you talk about automation and all of these sort of things. And people say, well, we don't need to worry about the jobs because historically when this has happened, it's led to even greater numbers of jobs and better jobs. Yes. You have to look at exactly what's happening now and go, yes, but is that always going to be the case, though? Because it certainly seems like you hit a point where that's no longer the case. And it's just a question of when we hit that point. But then you have other people who come around and say, the fact is that as automation increases, as we have more and more sophisticated robotics uh, as AI advances, the problem that's going to face humanity is leisure. How do we fill our time? Because everything will be produced, costs will be stripped out, everything will, we will have production, which will be fantastic. And the only problem will be finding something to do with your days that gives meaning to your life. And you know, even when they say that, even if that's on the face of it sounds frankly unlikely in the short to medium term it's not like that's a small thing anyway is it Gary? All we have to do is just find something to give meaning to your life because that's really easy That's generally being considered quite a big problem. It has and still is. To be honest if, if I was a truck driver I wouldn't be that worried about automation in the short term medium to long term obviously things can change quite quickly I'd be slightly more worried if I was you know a doctor or a solicitor. Yeah, that's the new thing is that actually those are the, the areas that are going to be outsourced. Maybe 
in the short term, not so much by robotics, but simply geography. That, uh, for example, we, there was a really interesting article, we, I think we might have adverted to it before in a podcast, about the fact that many, many entertainment companies in the United States now, large movie companies, don't use lawyers in the United States, but rather there are legal firms in India where legal costs are much, much lower, where they will have a guy in Mumbai who is an expert on the entertainment law of the state of Arkansas. Oh, I mean, the, the clusterfuck that the widespread adoption of working from home is going to cause is, is an entirely separate issue. And also what I don't think we people are really aware of. Because if you don't need to be in the office, why the fuck do they need you in the country? And eventually that, that will occur to someone. In fact, we, we can be fairly confident those very large multinationals are, have been aware of this for a long time, just wondering how the hell they're going to be able to manage it. Yeah, yeah. And on the on the doctor thing, it's already the case that um, machine learning algorithms are better than the majority of doctors at diagnosing um, a patient based on medical images or based on a listing of symptoms. So what I think we'll do, Michael, is we will automate a lot of the GP functions because diagnostic medicine can be done better by a machine than a person. And then we'll bring back the homeopaths to deal with all the people <laughs> skills. You love your homeopaths, don't you? I think we should have homeopaths on the HSA. I think they, they, they should be there. I don't think homeopathy works as a treatment for disease, but I don't think most people go to the GP to deal with treatments for diseases. I think they go for reassurance and because they have low-level mental health issues, which would be dealt with rather effectively by homeopaths who actually uh, are very effective at that kind of thing because they make people feel like they're being listened to and they're you know, emphatic and all of that sort of thing. So we'll just replace most of the GPs with machines and then you can have the warm, cuddly uh, homeopath who tells you things are going to be okay and you know, don't worry so much. And massage. And massage, yeah. But it's important we keep the trappings of, of medical science about it because if we don't do that, then we don't get as strong a placebo effect, which is what we really want here. And it's very cost effective as well. Like, it's really cost effective to bring in homeopaths and people might say, well, that's massively anti-science. You say, no, it's very scientific. They legitimately help the people who go to them as long as it's not something like cancer or a medical issue requiring physiological intervention. Something you, you've got a strep throat, which will, will require an antibiotic. And you, if you don't get it, then you could be in very serious trouble because streptococcus can cause lots of other nasty things. But when I say massage, I'm being serious. Because in those studies that have looked at the cost effectiveness of homeopathy, because I, would, I don't know if it's the majority, but certainly large numbers of people who go to their GPs are going because they're experiencing low levels of wellness, shall we? That's a strange amorphous term but low levels are just not feeling terribly well and one thing that we know that has very good i don't even if you even know if you call it a placebo effect but human physical human contact and massage actually can really elevate your sense of wellness and personal well, uh, your personal your sense of well-being and then you get the placebo effect of of the homeopathy on top of that and for people who just with a general sense of malaise not feeling very well having someone to talk to someone taking you seriously giving you the placebo and then having a nice massage can actually really elevate your sense of well-being and for as i said a very cost-effective basis so you know you go to the machine the machine gives you the antibiotics and gives you you know a course of 
treatment with this lovely, wonderful, cuddly person. And that would actually substantially improve people's lives. God, can you imagine the horror story would be if people actually took any of our any of our advice? See, the thing is, it would work. And if people accuse you of being anti-science because you're you know, bringing in homeopathy, you just say, well, actually, we ran the numbers and this is the best way to increase uh, patient health. So on a scientific basis, we're actually golden. <laughs> Yeah, and running the numbers is always that. Re- it's so reassuring for people, isn't it? Once they know you've run the numbers. Listen, it was either this or pumping gas into little. <laughs> From that, you, you were bringing up the building trade there, Michael. There's an interesting little story on building trade in the Business Post. It's very similar to some articles they've been publishing over the last couple of weeks. They've been really big on this, uh, on, on energy and on data centres. And I kind of feel like half of the articles I'm reading now are the old articles, but rewritten and with more material. Yes. It's creating this really weird effect where nothing I read, I'm sure if it's new or not in the Business Post. We, exactly, exactly that. There was an article again on... In the Business Post, entitled The Balance of Power, Why Ireland's Electricity Supply is Threatened and What Can Be Done to Bolster. Now, look, did we, did we not talk about that three weeks ago? Yeah, it's, it's listed as coming today, and then I'm looking at it going, even the headline seems very familiar to me. And I was reading it, and there's certainly more than was in the previous article, but it's, it's very similar. Now, it's worth maybe... The Business Post is just doing something fairly reasonable and sensible, which is adverting to what is possibly the single most important story in Ireland today that nobody seems to be talking about. Yeah, I mean, we brought it up, the Business Post, and we brought it up on the back of the Business Post's article, and there were one or two articles Gripped had published from someone who works as an executive in this area a couple of months ago, and the basic trend was, come winter, we're fucked, I think would be the general summary. In shorter language, yeah, that's pretty well. Yes, that we are we are now operating at fairly close to full capacity, and I think it was the article in Gript which made the point that there are these mathematical models that they run, and based on the number of times you come close to actually having a, a grey out or a blackout, that if you if you go past a certain frequency of this occurring. It be, it's an established idea within the industry that if that happens, then that means that you are actually going to have a shortage. It's no longer a question of if, it's a question of when. And we seem to have reached that point. If, if are, are very, very close to that point at least. And if that's true, it would seem to be something which is really kind of worth talking about. Now, part of the story was, and maybe you can refresh me on this guy the uh, the electricity distributors here had sought to get an extra lump of capacity from abroad but plans so to do that have been binned or shelved for reasons which were not enormously clear to me but I I think did you say there there were some legal issues arguing that the procurement was improperly carried out and the ESB just abandoned the plan which you know a cynical person Michael could suggest that perhaps there was something to the argument the procurement had not been properly handled but that would be something you couldn't know okay but whatever the reasons may or may not have been about dropping this particular plan the worrying thing surely is the fact that so, thus far we have not heard of a new plan we're we're in exactly the same position regarding capacity the plan to meet the problem of our lack of capacity has been has been 
build, but there is no new plan to get in more capacity. Well, it looks like what the Business Post is saying is they want the Huntstown generator to be back online. Part of the problem has been that uh, Whitegate and Huntstown, um, two of the generators in the country, are down. Yes. They're, they're both gas plants. If we could get those back online for winter, that would be absolutely great. And they are also looking at coal generation at Money Point. That's going to continue to be used. Yeah, that's all going to be uh, producing rather a lot of emissions. That I think people would rather we didn't. And then apparently AirGrid is also asking large uh, customers to try and use backup generators at times when the power supply is tight to avoid just rolling blackouts. However, the warning is that um, we are now close, or we will be close in winter, to rolling blackouts, particularly if they don't get those plants back online. I don't like their use of if they're... If we can get those plants back online for winter. If you'd prefer, Michael, think of it not a, as a if we get them back online, but... Our hope is we will get them back online. And that sounds better. I have to tell you, Gary, it doesn't sound a whole lot better. It's the 29th of August. Winter is coming. Yeah, but like, what are we meant to do, Michael? Build nuclear power plants? Not build data centres? On the same edition of the Business Post that's talking again about this problem, we have another story, which is the announcement that the government will try to ease the progress of data center development plans. Quoting here, Michal Martin told Amazon, according to speaking notes prepared for the Taoiseach's meeting with the online retail giant, quote, we realize the significant role that judicial review can play in the progress of developments like these, and the government will try to streamline the process. Now, at precisely the time when we're saying we have a serious crisis incapacity for generating electricity in the country. The government is pursuing a policy whereby all new houses effectively are going to be heated by electricity, where they want to get rid of diesel cars and petrol cars and replace them with electric cars. And we are now looking at a point where by the end of the decade, between a third and half of all of the electricity generated in the country is going to be consumed by data centres. And we're going to make the the planning process for the establishment of data centres easier. Now, I'm not against, in principle, the idea of streamlining the planning process in this country, but this seems like a peculiar choice. In fact, the apparent, I, I don't know, obsession is a strong word, but the strong enthusiasm, shall we say, that the government seems to have for the establishment and the construction of data centres in the country, when they don't seem to be a massive economic benefit to the country, either in, in money, taxation, revenues or jobs, at a time when we have a shortage in power and they are absolute beasts for the consumption of power. I don't know if that's a great economic balance payoff there, Gary. No, I mean, I had a look at uh, the IGA uh, asked Grant Thornton to produce a paper for them called A Study of the Economic Benefits of Data Centre Investment in Ireland. It's from 2018. But, you know, it's the IDA and it's Grant Thompson, so it's going to be as positive as positive can be mm -hmm. about uh, the benefits of these things, which I thought was fair, Michael, rather than going to someone who might, you know, criticise them. Yes, Absolutely. And they, they say they are looking at the expenditure on these things since 2010 to 2018, so across eight years. And you know, this is money that goes into the economy, Michael. Yes. And they say the total operational expenditure on data centers over those eight years was 1,587 million. Right. Over eight years, which sounds like a lot of money. Until you realise, actually, in terms of the government, it's not. It's what, around 200 million a year? 200 million a year. 
in and around. And that'll of course go up if we hit the expected 50% of our energy grid being used on data centers. Data centers do not, they're expensive to build, but once they're built, doesn't seem to be a great economic benefit to them, at least relative to the impact they have. So are we basically saying we're going to drive, insofar as we can, the consumption of electricity through the skies? We're closing down our plants. We're opposed to to gas fire generators. We won't absolutely even consider uh, nuclear plants. And by the way, even if we did suddenly have a, a Moses-like conver- St. Paul, I should say, like conversion to nuclear generation, at this stage, the proce- how long would it take, Gary, in this country to process the planning and the building of a nuclear power station? A while. We would actually, there would, would be zero point even trying before fixing the planning system. I mean, because you'd never get it true. Never. I mean, God, it would take so long. So, what are we doing? We're just basically going to say, well, fingers crossed, wind power and solar power and some other thing that we haven't yet worked out is going to be invented and that'll save us? Uh, yes, I believe that was the quote from Eamon Ryan when asked about some of the Green Party's environmental goals for the next decade, that some of the technology to achieve those goals does not yet exist. Well, that's a comfort. Oh, you've got to assume it'll exist at some point. Why? Because if you don't assume that, then you'd ask questions. And how am I going to boil my kettle and make my tea? Using fire, but not peat fire. Possibly not wood fire. Or coal. You'll find a way. I'm not confident, Gary, that I'm going to find a way. I really, I I think that left to my own devices and being told to boil a kettle without resorting to wood, coal or peat, I'm, I'm, I'm going to struggle to boil that kettle, Gary. I know very little about data centers and about the economics of data centers, other than the few reports I've seen. But there's this nearly messianic tone to any of the um, groups involved in data centers and about the, you know, the incredible benefits that they have and the amount they employ. It's a bit weird because, it, as I said, it's kind of messianic. Maybe actually it's a, it's a cunning plan. Maybe they're going to get Google and Amazon and all these other people to build their data centers here. And then the government will say, "You all the other activities that you have here, you, you have to keep them here or else we're going, to, we're going to bomb your data centers. We're going to hold them hostage. You ha- as, because they built them here, that they, they, the government will be in a position to demand that all their other activities, which they could maybe bring offshore and do elsewhere, that they have to do them here or we'll do horrible things to their data centers. Yeah, there's also this sort of thing where the groups who are lobbying for this, including some of the subgroups in IBEC, seem to talk about this in a sort of, and you know, this allows the investment and the exports we're seeing from global technological partners like Google and uh, Amazon. And not to be cynical, Michael, but I would imagine the data centers fall fairly low on the list of why those companies are in Ireland. You think? I suspect they're not the number one reason. I know, I'm sure there are people inside those companies whose job it is to deal with those sort of things who are very invested in whether or not they can build them in Ireland. I just don't think the the companies as a whole would share that um, that passion. I think they might be concerned in other things. You, you think they're here because of our flexible, mobile, sophisticated, technologically literate, uh, highly educated young population and the, our, our membership of the EU and our access to the EU markets. That's why they're here, because Irish workers are just great and Ireland's a great place to do business. That's the official line. Well, that is... 
And what else could it be? I mean, you're not going to say it's something to do with taxation. No, no. And we should remember that, just in case people have got the wrong idea, President Macron has said he is not putting pressure on Ireland to sort out its corporate tax structure and bring it more in line with European. Data centres, I must say, I find one of the oddest areas. Because it's the I will support the building of nearly anything, anywhere. But data centres, you just run the maths on them. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. There's almost there's almost a hundred of them planned in uh, March of this year, and you start looking at the energy consumption patterns of these things, and you know the risk of rolling blackouts. They don't really pay enough money into the economy that I'm willing to just rolling blackouts every winter or summer or actually pretty much constantly uh, is a good trade-off. I just don't think that. Because you'd have to wonder that if you are, for example, a large pharmaceutical company in Ireland, and let's not, it's the pharmaceuticals, I think, that are actually our largest uh, exporters in, I think, the single biggest sector. Although, of course, agriculture is still there, but are they really going to be happy being in a country where they can't be sure if the electricity is going to be on? I mean, it's There is a trade-off here. I mean, okay, it's fine to keep the, the tech people happy, but there are other people here who have their concerns, and one of their concerns, I would have thought, in a modern, developed first world economy is that you have a stable source of it, of electricity all the time. Yeah, yeah, stable, stable electricity is generally seen as a good thing. Or at the very least, you could say a lack of stable electricity is seen as a bad thing, a kind of thing that might put you off. All, and it's, it's worth observing the historic consumption should in no way be regarded as predictive of future consumption, because... As the, 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 the new, the new centres that are coming online are consuming more and more and more electricity uh, compared to the, shall we say, I think there are 70 already here, but the, that if and when all of the, the proposed data centres come online, they're going to represent a small fraction of what will be the total energy consumption. If there is a good economic argument for it, I said, I don't terribly know this sector. But a casual examination of it seems to indicate there are far more issues with it than there are potentials. But if I'm wrong on that, if a listener is aware of like a good, solid economic case for them that actually makes sense when taking into account uh, all of the generation issues, I'd be quite interested in hearing it. I suppose, Gary, it, we, sh- we should also say that this sh- should not be a discussion that we had to have. We shouldn't be in a position where we're looking at and a form of investment in the country and a form of employment in the country where we're saying, well, do we really want it? Because, you know, it's taking up all of this electricity and we don't have enough. Surely the problem here is the fact that we have a failure, a fundamental failure in competence and planning regarding the generation of electricity in the country. I think that that is a good point, regardless of whether or not. The question of whether or not data centres are a worthwhile economic trade-off when looking at their impact on the grid the fact you have to ask that does strongly indicate that something has gone wrong at government level with energy production. And that's a pretty basic function, you would have thought, of, of economic planning, the kind of, which is one of the things where governments are supposed to do, states are supposed to be responsible for. And, and we have said before, at the beginning, at the head of this, it doesn't seem to be getting a whole lot of chatter. I mean, maybe it's because of the pandemic or... We're in silly season. I would have thought this is the kind of thing, this a serious story, as we head into winter, that we, we should be hearing a little bit more about. One, it's a technical story. And the the industry around this, the lobbying groups, are downplaying this as much as possible. 
I can't, I, I accept that, I understand that, but I go back to my previous point. I, I, this doesn't have to be a criticism of Google or Amazon or any other bod, body building a data center here. The story, if anything, the story is the fact that our economic development, our economic advance is being put at risk because of the failure of the government to put in plans to, man, to, to guarantee sufficient electricity generating capacity. In the country, surely it, it, that has—that's not a bad story. And if it is a technical story, Gary, it'll stop being a technical story when the lights go out. Yeah, I mean, we got a couple of old people who freeze to death. This is suddenly going to become a much more attractive story. It's a hell of a lot more personal. Then let's just hope that we have a mild winter uh, with maybe lots of light. Maybe the sun will move its position, or the Earth will change its axis, and that'll it'll all be good. But other than that, when the lights go out, this will not this will no longer be a technical story. But hey, we shall we shall wait and see. Interesting little piece just to close up, Michael, in the um, in the Times by Barry Welch of uh, Finnegale. Yes, Barry back again. Yeah, the right to protest does not depend on approval, and he it's just a piece on the fact that protest is constitutionally protected in Ireland, with you know all of the general provisos that that means, and then it goes through some of the protests we've seen and how people may not have liked many of those protests. But we never uh, we never did anything about them because there is a constitutional uh, protection on it. And it does list some things where, you know, where you would have thought Fine Gael would have an interest in stopping those protests and didn't because the constitution. And then starts talking about the, um, the plans to ban protests around abortion clinics. Ah. And points out that the Garda Commissioner said there's no need for such a law as there is, and this is a quote, no evidence to suggest threatening, abusive or insulting behaviour has taken place at these protests. I do recall when the Commissioner was talking about this before, and they said that even were such to occur, they would have all of the powers necessary already, where if that occurred, they could then stop it. And Barry makes the point that any law which would uh, remove or punish people of a specific viewpoint would probably be in breach of the Constitution and the European Convention on Human Rights and so we'll probably never go anywhere. But the Irish Council for Civil Liberties supports it. Well, there's shock horror. Wow. That's just... I'm, I'm, I'm amazed that the Irish Civil Liberties is not out there in the, in the trenches defending rights of people that it doesn't necessarily uh, share their values. That amazes me, Gary. I'd struggle, Michael, to understand how Barry could think so little of the ICCL. We've done so much for this country. So much. So very, very much. Unfortunately, this isn't like a what have the Romans done for us. This is a <laughs> let's say very much and pray there are no follow-on questions. Yeah. No, these are not the Romans. They have not given us viticulture, safe streets at night in Jerusalem. Ah, uh, I mean, it, you have to think at the end of it, because they've taken legal advice. We know they've taken legal advice. That this is just a very pernicious form of virtue signaling, and I don't like that term because it's one of those things that gets in, and now everything is virtue signaling. But this is, this is just feeling a virtue. We're these nasty, horrible people, um, cultists. I suppose they're trying to generate this sense that these people are like you know those Westboro Baptist people. Oh, yes, yes. You're the ones that go to the funerals of soldiers who died uh, in the United States, who, who died on, 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 on active duty. And 
say horrible things to them and they upset people. You know, it's, it's the notion is that all around Ireland there are people like Vesper Vesper standing around shouting and screaming and imprecations at people going into these uh, clinics. And Finnegan is saying, we're against that kind of thing because we're nice people and we want you to understand and know that we are nice people because they can't do it. I mean, every 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 articulation of every form that has been suggested of a law that might do what they want to do. The legal advice has been, well, you could do that, but the very good chance that's unconstitutional. So why are they why are they persisting with it? Unless it's just to make some, it is effectively throwing shapes. That's all they're doing. They're throwing shapes. Now, of course, it could be that I don't. We we get to the court and we discover, hmm. Times are changed and things ain't what they were and the court has a whole different view of it, but I can't see that. It's the Irish Constitution. There are enough carve-outs. You can actually get quite a lot through it. And I think as we found over the COVID period particularly, Irish courts, I mean, traditionally they have shown deference to the government in relation to political matters. But the past year we've gone from deference, like respectable deference, to sort of um, groveling. I would prefer to phrase to frame it like this, that I think there's been a, a, a shift in the ju- in the judicial understanding of the interpretation of the Constitution. And we have maybe gone back to an understanding which is more similar to the jurisprudence that would have been the case in Ireland up to the 30s and 40s, which basically says Parliament is sovereign and unless there are very, very strong, good, explicit reasons that we can see, that Parliament gets to make law and it's not our job, it's not the job of the court to make law. And there have to be extremely strong circumstances that before the court will actually interfere with that. Um, it's a more sort of British positivist approach. There is less, shall we say, of a natural law uh, approach that we saw, what you might call in sort of the high Catholic days of the court in the 50s, 60s and 70s, up to the 80s, I don't know. But you could call it judicial restraint, or you could call it a craven attitude towards the government. It depends what rhetorical form you want to use. But there has been, I mean, there was that sense... Yeah, maybe you're born. Maybe you're right, Gary. Maybe I'm wrong. I, I'm just thinking of the the case of Declan Ganley and the right to worship. It was very hard to look at the way that case was handled and not think that basically they long fingered it and long fingered it in such a way that they would never actually have to answer the question whether or not what the government was doing was constitutional or not. And they got to the point where, because the restrictions had been eased and worship, public worship was now allowed again, that they said the point was moot, rather than giving a judgment on the point of law. Which means that effectively, we, when the government had made that choice, which, but, but it effectively meant that we were still in the dark regarding the constitutionality of what the government had done. Yes, and it was obviously a case that might arise again, and therefore... Yeah, but you know that. Um, who are we to disagree with a judge, Michael, on what would seem like an obvious error? Well, I don't suppose the judges would see it like that, Gary. And they are wise men and women who are steeped and knowledgeable in the law. Yeah, unfortunately, Michael, I have a feeling there are a couple of judges who would have viewed that as a serious error of judgment. That may also be true. <laughs> I just have 
<laughs> a feeling like there may be two or three that had that sense. Yes, that is true. Anyway, on actually just an important point on the ICCL, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. I always like when I'm dealing with an NGO to know who pays them. And we complain a lot about NGOs being paid by the state and things like that because that obviously biased them in particular ways. Organisations that are entirely dependent upon many small members' donations can also be very easy to move. You are like the um, ACLU in America. That became far less willing to protect civil rights because during the Trump administration era, they gained so many members who were very strongly progressive and were just absolutely believed that Trump was going to destroy all civil rights in the country. But then as time went on, those people were not the people who would have traditionally supported the ACLU. So the ACLU changed in response to that. Yes. Hence why the new ACLU is basically an entirely different organization wearing the skin of the ACLU as some sort of horrible drag act. But the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, Michael, yeah, it's, it's, it's there to protect everyday people's affairs, you would assume, strongly supported by the people of Ireland. Okay. There are, there are two groups in the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. You have the Irish Council for Civil Liberties Company, and you have the Irish Council for Civil Liberties Members Association. The Members Association says it got €13,656 in from its members in 2020. Okay, good. The company of the Irish Council for Civil Liberties says it got 17,000 in membership fees and 9,000 in donations. And everything else comes from, well, actually, there are four major trusts that give these people money. So you've got the Luminate Group, you've got the International Network for Civil Liberties Organizations, you've got the Sigrid Rising Trust, and you've got the um, Open Society Foundation. And then you've also got European uh, Commission money. Which is odd, because I thought the ICCL said they were independent of any government. Open Society, that's George Soros, is it? That is Soros, yeah. And what was Sieg- Siegfried Rising, what? So, Rising is um, a Swedish philanthropist. Swedish philanthropist giving money to Irish civil liberties people. Isn't it, it's, as, you, as you often say, Gary, isn't it a fantastic time to be alive? What a time to be alive, yeah. I'm not sure where she made her money. Sweden. Iron ore, Volvo. ABBA? Maybe she shares an ABBA. Well, I, I think that she is the granddaughter or daughter of um, Hans Rousing. And if she is, well, Hans Rousing was um, involved in Tetra Pak. Oh, yes. And Rousing was a billionaire. Back in the days when you didn't have many billionaires. The Tetra Pak billionaire, yeah. A lot of money in Tetra Pak. Yep. Still... That's the ICCL. I suppose maybe it's time to I'm sh- draw a veil over it for Pro Tem because, Gary, I have a feeling that you will be back discussing the ICCL at, at other points in the future. But for now, I suppose we shall bid adieu to our dear listeners and we shall be back on Wednesday when it will no longer be August. They are a bit of an evergreen group. They wouldn't be if, you know, they actually have to rely on the public, though. No, they would definitely be deciduous. Well... I'm not sure deciduous. It might be a bit long-lived. Annuals, if not perennials. Anyway, we will be back on Wednesday. Until then, mind yourselves and keep washing your hands. All the best.